The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films, but our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. guys happy halloween and welcome Ooh. to our halloween special this is episode 119 where we will still be covering the exorcist i'm your host jimbo and i'm the spooky co-host kyle. kyle so welcome to the tragedy of cinema podcast if this is your first time listening welcome aboard and if you're a faithful listener thanks for your continued support absolutely we love you so kyle before we get to and- Ooh, with the main course. The main course. We always throw a little dessert. Yeah, appetizer, a, little, a little zinger appetizer right. in there. So, Kyle. Intriguing question. Question of the day. And this has got nothing to do with the movie. So Am I possessed? No. Yes. What do you think was your most embarrassing Halloween costume that you've ever had to wear to oh. go trick-or-treating? Trick-or-treating. Um, I one time dressed as uh, basically Garfield. <laughs> But we didn't actually have a Garfield costume. You just walked around with a pan of lasagna? No, no. I got an orange shirt, and I crudely, like, sharpied the stripes on it, 
I painted my face with like some orange dye stuff. <laughs> I gotta see a picture. Damn Put it on the trashiest cinema no, podcast page. No, we have to see no, this. No, that's that's a crime. Um, do you have a picture of it? I don't know if I do anymore. Honestly, oh, uh, it, it did not look good. It did not look good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was yeah, that was that was that was, that was me. Um, I got throw it back at you, John uh, Jimbo, because now you gotta embarrass yourself. What was your most embarrassing costume, Jimbo? Well. Um, you know, Take your I've, belt I had hand. some of those, you know, 80s plastic costumes, but mm-hmm. I will say I don't, I, you know, looking back on it, I don't think it was necessarily the most embarrassing, but the, 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 the one I probably remember the, the most is my dad worked for a place and they were throwing away scraps of stuff. So, uh, he basically made me like a robotic, uh, costume made oh. out of spare parts. So, that sounds pretty cool, actually. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to see if I can't find a picture. My I'm most sure. embarrassing story is something I dressed up in was awesome. Yeah. Well, Thanks, Jimbo. Wait really till you see there. it, Kyle, before you say. Uh, so that, that's my story. Yeah. So this is The Exorcist, which we were part of the 5th Annual Hillbilly Horror Stories podcast uh, Halloween episode. So a special thanks to Jerry and Tracy Pauly once again for allowing us to be a small part of their podcast every year. Um, so we did a little 10 minute snippet there. Um, and this is the main, uh, episode. Um, one thing about the exorcist that I will say is there are podcasts, literally a series of podcasts all on the exorcist. Yeah. Um, there's documentaries, there's different, um, what do you call it? Like, um, do- uh, where the, the director, Cammy, a director or even some of the actors will come on and give commentary mm-hmm. throughout the movie. So what we're going to cover here, um, there is so much more that we could cover about this movie. Uh, we're only going to be able to probably scratch the service, probably an hour oh. runtime, I'd yeah. say at least, maybe a little bit longer. But what we're going to talk about, we're just barely going to scratch the service. So know that um, there is a lot more information out there. So don't get bent out of shape if we don't cover everything because we're just trying to do the best we can in the limited amount of time that we have. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kyle, let's Take it from get me. started. All right, yeah, yeah. And like I said, yeah, once again, just we're going to reiterate, like, we're going to cover as much as we can for, like, the next hour, you know, ish, and give you all stuff a gap, but, like, you know, there's a whole culture to this thing that, like, you can dive into and learn all the cool facts about this film, and maybe the more bitter realities. But <laughs> <laughs> let's move on just to the film. So we have The Exorcist, released on December 26th in 1973. Directed by William Friedkin, uh, written by William Peter Blatty for the uh, run for the screen based on the novel. Cinematographer was Owen Rosman, and uh, let's see here, casting director was Louis D. Gamio. Louis, Louis, Louis D. Gamio. All right, good, good there. Um, quick little synopsis. Uh, no, a, a plot summary actually. Uh, plot summary there. A visiting actress in Washington, D.C. notices, drama- notices a dramatic and dangerous changes in the behavior and physical makeup of her 12-year-old daughter. Meanwhile, a young priest at nearby Georgetown University begins to doubt his faith while dealing with his mother's terminal sickness. And booking the story, a frail elderly priest recognizes the necessity to show down with an old demonic enemy. Dun, dun, dun. Let's see here. We have the budget for the film, for the original thing. It was $11 million to make this film. Um, very modest, even for 73, actually, that kind of budget. That's uh, pretty low. Um, and adjusting for inflation, though, it's actually made about $73.5 million to make the movie for the budget overall. 
And then opening the week, Kyle didn't make any money. It did make <laughs> it made some moolah. In fact, for the next few weeks, I'm going to say this movie made the most moolah of the movies we're going to cover, which is Combined. shocking to me. <laughs> shocking. Um, I did not like. I knew Exodus was big. I didn't realize it was that big. Um, opening weekend, it made 8.1 million dollars, which adjusted for inflation would be about 54.6 million dollars, roughly. But then we go to the big old number. We have gross worldwide. Gross worldwide, it made $441.3 million. Whew, that's a big chunk of change. You know, otherwise, you know, it was like 44, basically, basically 40 times the amount of money <laughs> it could have made, uh, you know, uh, it made for the budget. And then it gross for, and adjusted for inflation today, so from 1973 to 2022, would it be about 2.95 billion dollars billion with a b not million billion <laughs> with a b just insane money i had to like do double takes back and forth like billion really just like look into that number and that is just insane money to me so wow um big big earner for the extra movies don't wonder they made sequels and it's still a cultural phenomenon today and how people like thrive into it I really feel like I lived in a bubble where I didn't realize Exorcist was just that big. But here we are. <laughs> Moving on to, we're going to go through the awards section here. Let's see here. Um, in 2015, for the most recent reward here, um, it was um, for the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films in the USA. It was nominated for a Saturn Award for the Best Blu-ray slash DVD collection of the film. So, excellent Blu-ray release right there. We watched it via streaming services, me and Jimbo, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, at least I did. I know I did. And uh, going forward, we have the 2010 National Film Preservation Board, where it was added to their registry. So, a film they wanted to keep kept in history forever. And 2009, it was on the Online Film and Television Association, where it won the award for the Film Hall of Fame. In 1999, Empire Awards gave it the... Um, it won the... Movie Masterpiece Award, where the William Friedkin, the director. In 1973, it also won a Golden Screen Award. Then getting closer to the release date here, we have 1975, where it won the award for um, the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. Um, it won the Best Horror Film, Best Special Effects, Best Makeup, and Best Writer. Um, best Makeup we'll get back to in the fun facts like that, too, about the old age of makeup especially and how it affected one of the actors' whole career. Then going on here, we have the Academy Awards, where it won Best Sound Design, where it's Christopher Newman and Robert Knudsen. And it also won the Oscar for Best Writing or Screenplay based on material from another medium, specifically the book. And that was awarded to William Peter Blatty, the writer for the, the screenplay writer for the film. Then we have 74, we have, in 1974, we have the Golden Globe, Golden Globe Awards, where it won Best Motion Picture um, and Best Supporting Actress, where it's Linda Blair. Also won Best Screenplay to William Peter Blatty again. And Best Director awarded to William Friedkin. Then also in 1974, we have the Motion Picture Sound Editors for the USA, where it won the Golden Reel Award for Best Sound Editing and Best Sound Editing for oh, Dialogue and Sound Effects. So Distinguished Awards for Motion Picture Sound Editors. I remember covering them in the award nominations for Best Motion Picture Sound Editors. But I don't remember for Dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, dialogue specifically. Well, I imagine how they do the overdubbing and all those kind of things, too. Maybe they just, maybe the original shots were, like, not recorded properly, so they had to overdub them, and maybe they did a good job there. Might be some stuff in the notes down later, we'll see. But um, interesting little factoid there about winning that award. But that concludes the awards. Next up, we'll go to some of the more technical info. This is a color film. 
The aspect ratio is 1.85 by 1. Camera, this was filmed on the Panavision PSR R200, pretty standard for the time there. Film length, we're looking at about um, 3,328 meters. And for the director's cut, we're looking at about 3,677 meters, so about a 350-some-odd, well, 340-some-odd meters added to the reels for the extended footage and extra stuff, too. I actually watched the, um, the what was it called, The Exorcist, the version you've never seen before. Oh, really? I watched that version. and uh, <laughs> That's funny, because you had never seen any I, version before, so exactly. any version you would have yeah. watched. Actually, it may have been weighed up. Oh, okay. I'm going to go through the international release dates here. There was also releases of the William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. Then there was The Exorcist, the version you haven't seen yet. And then there's The Exorcist, the version you've never seen. <laughs> I love movie titles sometimes. <laughs> just just some guys in suits going like, no, no, we'll call it this for Europe and we'll call it this for America. What? <laughs> I'm sure it matters somewhere, I guess. But still, it's, it's absurd. Um... We're looking at the next fun facts here to cover. But nope, I think we're going to move on to the cast list here. So, moving on to the cast list, we have Ellen Bernstein, uh, Bellen Bernstein, playing Chris McNeil. Um, she was also in the film Requiem for a Dream in 2000. Then we have Max von Sydow playing Father Lancaster Marin. Um, he was also in the film Flash Gordon in 1980. Then we have Lee J. Cobb playing Lieutenant William Kinderman. He was in 12 Angry Men in 1957. Excellent Great movie. movie. Yeah, excellent movie. Then we have Kitty Wynn playing Sharon. She was in the film The Panic in Needle Park in 1971. Then we have Jack McGowan playing Burke Dennings. They were in the film The Quiet Man in 1952. Then we have Jason Miller playing Father Damien Karras. He was in the film The Exorcist 3 in 1990, reprising the role, I believe. And then also we have Linda Blair playing Reagan McNeil. She was in the film Savage Streets in 1984. Moving on, we have a few more people who go here. We have William O'Malley playing Father Dyer, also as a um, Reverend William O'Malley, um, SJ. Um, he was also in the film This Christmas in 2007. Then we have Barton Hyman playing Dr. Klein. Barton Hyman was also in the film The Basketball Diaries in 1995. Then we have Peter Masterson playing Dr. Berenger as the uh, cl- the clinic director in the hospital. Um, Peter Madison was also in the film The Stepford Wise in 1975. Then we have Rudolf Schindler playing Carl. Rudolf was also in the film um, Suspiria in um, Suspiria, yeah, uh, Suspiria in 1977. I'm trying to get that pronunciation on point. Hopefully, hopefully Jim won't make fun of me. Then we have Robert Simmons playing Dr. Tanning. Robert was also in the film Catch Me If You Can in 2002. Excellent film there. Arthur Storch was uh, playing the role of the psychiatrist we see early in the film. He was also in the film Death Play in 1976. Then we have Thomas Birmingham playing Tom, the president of the, Ur- the, president of the university, as Reverend Thomas Birmingham. Um, he was also in the film The Amityville Horror in 1979, the original one. Then we have Wallace Rooney playing Bishop Michael. Um, Wallace Rooney was also in the film The Twilight Zone in 19... 19- oh, uh, the original show, actually, The Twilight Zone in 1959. Then we have Donna Mitchell playing Mary Jo Perrin. She was also in the film Boiler Room in the, in the year 2000. Then we have Roy Cooper um, playing Jessup Dean. Roy was in the film, also in the film The, Di- the Basketball Diaries in 1995. And then finally we have um, Mercedes McCambridge. Um, she actually played the um, the voice of the demon 
in the um, film you hear from sometimes rap film. I believe there are also some uncredited roles on my beef voice in the original Demon. But um, Mercedes McCambridge was also in the film Giant in 1956. Which the, was the James Dean James movie. James Dean movie that we covered pretty earlier this year. So that is a cast of The Exorcist right there. All cool facts for you to come. And now we're going to move on to the trivia section. Jimbo, take it from me. All right. So there's so many notes here that uh, basically I, I cut them in half and gave Kyle half of uh, half of the pages. So um, we're going to start talking about some of these facts. Maybe trade blows back and forth. Cool facts. Probably over taps and stuff. Good. Right. So uh, Ellen Burstyn agreed to do uh, to do the movie only for character. Didn't have to say the scripted line. I believe in the devil. The producers agreed to eliminate the utterance, so she didn't have to say it, and she got to do the movie. So, win-win. Mm-hmm. Um, Mercedes McCambridge uh, had to sue Warner Brothers for credit as the voice of the demon. William Friedkin, on the Diane Reem show, NPR, uh, April 29, 2012, said that originally she didn't want a credit, saying that she wanted the audience to believe the voice was Reagan's. However... After it was released, she changed her mind and was given the credit. Probably because there was a lot of moolah involved. Yeah. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Didn't realize you were passing on some opportunities for some you know, long-term benefits. Here you go, Kyle. Sexuals. What about this one? Audrey Hepburn was William Friedkin's first choice to play the role of Chris McNeil, and Warner Brothers supported him because of her good critical and commercial reputation with the studio, but she only agreed to do it if it was filmed in Rome. Anne Bancroft was another choice, but she was in her first month of pregnancy and was dropped. Mm, okay. No, that makes sense why she was dropped, but also, like, I don't like, it's just the film's filmed in Rome or... Well, I was going to say, that's like saying, Kyle's saying, well, Kyle, we're going to have you in this movie, but you have to come to Austin, Indiana to film it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just one of those things where just like, if you're insisting on those locations, that, thing, that, that to me sounds like you don't actually want to do the film, so you put on these ludicrous demands. So, like, that if they do they these dumb things, I will do it. Yeah, that's, right. that's the kind of thing where I feel like that attitude going forward. Um, also, Ellen Burstyn received a permanent spinal injury during filming. In the sequence where she is thrown away from her possessed daughter, a harness jerked her heart away from the bed. She fell on her coccyx and screamed in pain. Yeah, and that, really, that shot is still in the film, too. <laughs> yeah, man. It's awful. Uh, the archaeological dig site seen at the beginning of the movie is the actual site of ancient Nineveh in uh, Hatra, Iraq. Uh, the first scene to be shot was of a distressed Karis play, uh, pacing the corridors of the Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital, agitatedly discussing with his uncle his mother's incarceration. Mm-hmm. Uh, the refrigerated bedroom set was cooled with four air conditioners, and temperatures would plunge below 30 degrees. It was so cold that perspiration would freeze on some of the cast and crew. On one occasion, the air was saturated with moisture, resulting in a thin layer of snow falling on the set before the crew arrived for filming. Just Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 like, I don't know if we just didn't know back then, but I feel like there's so many easier ways to make it look like it's cold in a room. I think like the original Shining, when like they filmed that in like the middle of like summer, like incredibly hot the whole time, and, like they had no problem making it look cold there. But in this film, they're like, no, let's do it for real. Let's right. freeze these people to death. Uh, the Christian evangelist Billy Graham claimed an actual demon was living in the celluloid reels of this movie. <laughs> what, a, what an interesting claim there. Um, according to The Exorcist 3, the events of the first Exorcist movie takes place in 1975, to give it a date to the film. So the film didn't come out in 73, but now the events are supposed to happen in the future, too. So 1975 nice. there. Interesting little fun detail there. Um 
When Pazuzu, the demon that possesses uh, the, the girl in the movie, remarks that the exorcism would bring Reagan, Karis, and him together, he was right because he ends up possessing Karis. Right, that was very interesting. Um, I think the, the foreshadowing there right. was really, you know, impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, in both the in both this and her follow up TV movie in 1973's Summer of Fear, Linda Blair asked her parents for a horse. It's likely in both cases this dialogue was improvised since Blair was an average equestrian in real life. I believe equestrian is a horse lover, <laughs> like a horse appreciator, uh, horse connoisseur, horse rider, horse rider. <laughs> Uh, author William Peter Blady once won $10,000 on the Groucho Marx show, You Bet Your Life. When Groucho asked what he planned to do with the money, he said he planned to take some time off to work on a novel. <laughs> this was the novel that he did. <laughs> yeah, small world moments of like, oh, wow, okay, yeah. Like, one thing leads to another. Yeah, I don't know, when you like you, you hit that little domino, all of a sudden you have a Titanic yeah. at the end of it. Uh, yeah. The spider walk sequence, which was cut from the original version, was reworked for Ruby and other low-budget films. Uh, the language lab scene was filmed in a room in the basement of Keating Hall on Fordham University's Bronx campus. The same room was used as a Pentagon office in A Beautiful Mind, if you ever saw that movie, Kyle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Damien's dream sequence when he imagined his deceased mother is very similar in tone to Rosemary's dream sequence when the Black Mass ritual is taking place. And she imagines seeing the Pope and being on that strange ship and then the stranger crawling on top of her. Friedkin is clearly referencing Rosemary's Baby in that scene. That's something we're going to have to the cover idea of having, yeah, soon, too. Rosemary's Baby is a, quite a film to cover. I, I haven't watched it myself, but I have I got enough facts to know it's interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, when originally released in the UK, a number of town councils imposed a complete ban on the showing of this film. This led to the bizarre spectacle of exorcist bus trips, where enterprising travel companies organizes buses to take groups to the nearest town where the film was showing. Hmm. Um, in the Georgetown Park scene, when Chris is begging Damien to do an exorcism on Reagan, it's pretty clear Ellen Bernstein's voice uh, voice has been recorded in the indoor studio sound booth, not outside, as you're supposed to believe, due to the studio type echo her voice actually has. Mm-hmm. So that's probably why we got back to the original award for the, the motion picture um, sound recording scene, why they get a, a reward for, like, doing the voice editing work, because they probably had, like, poor quality stuff to work with, and they made a presentable film out of it. So that's kind of impressive. Uh, the statue of Pazuzu was accidentally sent to Hong Kong before arriving on location in Iraq. Can you imagine? Hey, uh, Amazon, what's this package at my front door? Oh, <laughs> yeah. This is the giant statue. Uh, yeah. oh. Like, what's the strange fact? You open it up and there's a demon inside. Like, this is not ours. We are not taking this. <laughs> I couldn't imagine the frustration and terrifying there. In the scene in the language lab, a white banner is visible with the following letters. T-A-S-U-K-E-T-E, written in red. Tasukete means help me in Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm speaking like of, uh, of Mary, I believe Mary, that's the D. Wallace's injury, spinal injury. Um, Linda Blair also said in a recent interview that her... No, no, no. You're looking at the E.T. notes there, buddy. I am looking at the E.T. notes right there. I said Linda Blair, didn't I? <laughs> yes, I did. I No, you said D. Wallace. <laughs> I did say D. Wallace. Words are tough. Okay. Ellen Burstein is the Helen Helen Burstein. Ellen. Ellen. My apologies. Um, Linda Blair said in a recent interview that her spine was fractured too during the scene, Mother, Make It Stop. It's burning. It's burning scene where Reagan's upper body 
don't do that. <laughs> um, upper body is ricocheting, is ricocheting up and down off the bed. The contraption was supposed to lift her up and down and broke loose, and her spine was permanently injured. Ironically, Ellen Bernstein's back was also permanently injured in another scene. All this plays into the Exorcist Curse mythology surrounding the film. If you want to look up Exorcist Curse, there's a whole rabbit hole you can go down there of Wikipedia pages, but uh, right. we won't be digging in too much of that for this you know, podcast. Right. Uh, audience member who saw the movie in 1974 during its original theatrical release fainted and broke his jaw on the seat in front of him. He then sued Warner Brothers and the filmmakers claiming that the use of subliminal imagery in the film had caused him to pass out. The studio settled out of court for an undisclosed sum. What, what's your thoughts on that, Kyle? I think it's one of the cases where like, like you read off the top of your head and it sounds ridiculous and absurd, and but um, in actuality, probably having subliminal messages or the flashing light is probably a, uh, a, a easy way to have like a seizure or any other kind of like medical condition that if you're not warned about beforehand, then like you'd have a right, but adverse it, medical But reaction. it kind of reminds me of like um, the lady that ordered McDonald's coffee and then burned herself on the McDonald's coffee. You ordered coffee, lady. It's going to be hot. Yeah, yeah, but you know, also like, you read all the facts and now that story too. That's one of the things like that that this is all like for me, every time I read about that, that's like corporations trying to make sure they can never be sued for anything ever. Whenever like, look how ridiculous this story is and they try and promote it, how ridiculous and absurd it sounds from the headlines. And then when you dig into it, it's like, no, actually they had a pretty reasonable case in many of the conditions that they did. And uh, like adding a warning label doesn't help the situation. Like she's still like, like she asked for a little bit of money and like instead they were crass and incredibly rude to her. And eventually the court case kind of went to that where McDonald's was just so rude to this lady that the jury ended up finding her in favor. And even then they drug it out and like, um, later um, settled for and closed them out because they weren't going to pay the hundred, hundred whatever like millions of dollars they were supposed to pay out and later came out like okay we will either challenge you on this case and never pay out until you die or we'll pay you some small pitiful amount that will pay off what you need right now and that's what ended up in that McDonald's case so that's another rabbit hole you can go down to <laughs> obviously Kyle corporate, has read down that corporate lawsuit stories all that kind of stuff too um, suffice to say that like yeah, actually, I think the guy who broke his jaw probably was in the right to sue, and also the lady who um, burned herself in McDonald's also probably in the right. <laughs> right, but is, it could it also be a scam where the guy had broken his jaw in, let's say, a bar fight the night before, and then he he just kind of fell forward, saying that the movie caused him to do that too. Um, I was, How are you going to prove that one way or the other? You would probably have evidence of the chair or anything like that too, or a history of evidence seizures. of the chair, evidence of the chair he broke his chin on, or evidence of seizures being triggered from flashing lights before he went to the movie theater or something like that too. Any number of things you can dive into that case if their history is there, but um, I'm not I'm not their lawyer. I'm not going to defend in that case. <laughs> but like I bet you know he probably you know he probably got an unclosed sum because he was on the rights. <laughs> yeah, honestly, the case you know. Uh, if adjusted for inflation, this would be the highest-grossing R-rated film of all time. Easily, easily. <laughs> Kyle Nearly just figured that. Billion dollars. Um, this is the highest-grossing Warner Brother film of all time uh, when adjusted for inflation. Uh, when he was writing his novel, William Peter Blayley was collecting unemployment benefits. <laughs> <laughs> How'd that work out for you, William? Yeah, yeah, not, not quite as well anymore. He's like, no, no, call me Bill now. <laughs> call me Bill now. Yeah. Uh, as of 2020, the property in Georgetown used for the exterior scenes next to the infamous stairs is now a marijuana store. <laughs> oh, well, well, imagine that. <laughs> Uh, there were three separate beds built to do three separate movements. Um, if you've seen this movie, you know the different uh, stages that the bed goes through. Uh, Father Dyer is played by William O'Malley, an actual priest who until 2012 taught at Fordham Prep, a Jesuit high school. 
Uh, the original teaser trailer for this movie uh, consisted of nothing but images of the white-faced demon quickly flashing in and out of darkness was banned in many theaters as it was deemed too frightening. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I can understand that. And once again, also, like, the risk of seizures again. Like, Mike, 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 But did you notice in this movie that you only see the demon, I think, one time, and it's just a quick flash, I think. Um, the scene where you see the statue itself? No, not the statue. Not the statue, but the face? The face. Um, I, I think, think it's, it's when... It's when uh, I, the priest guy sees his mother coming up out of the subway. I know we see and him flashed there. him right there. I thought there was. I thought there was other three scenes where they had like one flash though. I thought there was like three scenes they had to flash. I don't know if they were all on his face though. They could have been other parts of the body possibly. Um, but they did. I, I do know they show his face in that one little right. shot. Um, but it's a uh, yeah. Uh, director William Friggin said that he and his crew were treated with the utmost hospitality and uh, called the Iraqi people the nicest people he had ever met. For the scene where Father Marin is nearly ran over by a carriage, a 109-year-old Iraqi lady agreed to be in it as she was filmed racing over the cobbled street six times. Wow. Friedkin mentioned that she was pretty shaken up by then. 109. 109. Jumping out of the way of a carriage, and they took six Six takes. Six takes. That's 109, Kyle. I... My knees are powdered now. That's I'm not I even said. thirty. I, I, I don't even know if I could cross the street once when I'm 109. Oh my god! But wow, good for her. Uh, you, told me, you told me to cross the street six times. Now I'm going to be tired. Right. <laughs> uh, the original shooting uh, schedule was for 85 days, but filming in America lasted for 224 Ooh. days. Oh my gosh! Talk about like I mean, like that. That's definitely like that's a, well. Like, that's. Something else I'd like to bring up, like we have been covering the Universal Monsters, and a lot of those were filmed in 30 days or less, oh, one yeah. month, and then it was released like the month or two right after that. Mm. Nowadays, we'll even look at this movie, 224 days, that's... Not too... Yeah, yeah, yeah. About, like so, eight months. But so I imagine in 1973, once you get like to pass like 150 days, like, you got to think like, is this production ever going to end? Like right. how much longer do we have to go and all that kind of stuff too? Um, there are two Exorcist movies that have serial killers in them. Real life serial killers. And oh, the yeah. original Exorcist is one of the actors that played a medical assistant at the hospital where Reagan were under, was undergoing tests turned out to be a serial killer in real life. Then part three has an actual serial killer, serial killer, character, serial killer character in the movie, um, Jason Miller's Karis, who survived after jumping out of the Mansell's um, McNeil's window at the end of part one was still possessed by a demon himself, and his alternate identity, known as the Gemini Killer, was played by Brad Dourif and was a real-life serial killer. So life imitates art mm. in its own little strange way. So that's a dark fact about um Yeah, I think I got some the, more in here about the being the serial killer, the guy's name and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the producer sought to have none other than Jamie Lee Curtis audition for the role of Reagan McNeil, but her mother, Janet Lee, mm-hmm. refused. I can see why. I mean, this is a controversial film, like for the time, and even right. to an extent today. So I understand. Um, there was supposed to be a turning of the tables in part one of the series and in part three. Part one was about um, the little girl Reagan, who was possessed by a demon and is confronted by the priest Miller, and who winds up performing an exorcist on the girl to save her. In part three, the Miller um, versus Chaos character is supposed to come back, having survived the jump from McNeil's balcony and is now possessed by himself by Pazuzu. Apparently, Pazuzu can inhabit more than one person at a time, since he is also in Reagan in part two. So he also, so he obviously never left her body. And in part three, instead of Karis performing the exorcism, he is having the exorcism performed on him, although the actor playing the character in those scenes is not played by Miller, out by Brad 
Duriff, his dynamic, his demonic alternate identity. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think that once he jumped out of the window and Karis died, that he just the demon just went back to Reagan instead of being in two and one? I think, like, for the first film, if you're just watching the first film on its own, like, it's implied that, like, you know, like, Karis jumps out the window, he dies, and then the demon is uh, also oh. vanquished back to, you know, presumably hell or some other kind of, like, right. that, too. The demon's gone, yes. Um, that's what implies in the first film. Um, I actually haven't watched two or three. I might go back and rewatch them sometime in the future, but, like, they never had an interest to me to watch those films, but, like, now I am a little bit interested to see, like, okay, what is the strange mythology they built up where Pazuzu can occupy... Two places at once, and all those kind of factoids. But um, interesting little, you know, turning the tables there. Like, if I were going to, you know, imagine a sequel, that's how I would do it. I'm out where Pazuzu, right. you know. Uh, adjusted for inflation, as we talked about, Kyle, this would be the ninth highest grossing movie of all time. Ninth highest of all time. Wow. Okay, that is very impressive. I don't know when that date was taken. Was that 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 goal post is shifting every year? And now, I don't know when like. this note was written. It could there could have been some more movies that uh, jumped it by. Well, yeah, like, like Avengers, Avengers Endgame, right. Avatar, Avatar, Avatar Two is going to come out soon. Like all that goal post is shifting every year. It feels like for the next few years. Legendary. Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock. Turned down the chance to acquire the screen rights to the novel and also turned down the chance to direct the film when another producer bought the rights to the property. Oh, boy. I would have loved to have seen Alfred Hitchcock get his hands on this movie. I would have fascinated to see this film, too. I absolutely agree. Um, that very different film, but also, it, you know, the potential is out there, like the imagining some alternate universe. You know, Alfred Hitchcock's Exorcist is the best movie ever made. Uh, Ellen Burstyn uh, wrote a bracelet, uh, sorry, wore a bracelet in this film with a horseshoe on it because she had the idea that she wanted her character, Chris McNeil, to be poorly armed to fight the devil. On the last day of filming, she gave the bracelet to Linda Blair. Several years later, they crossed paths on the airline flight to Los Angeles, and Linda was wearing the bracelet that she had given her. So, so she okay. had kept that all those years later. She still had that bracelet. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Um, the demon, Pazuzu, not specifically named in the movie, but definitely identified in the original novel that possesses Reagan was a real figure in Mesopotamian mythology. The ancient religious beliefs of the Mesopotamian may seem strange or illogical to modern-day people, but while Pazuzu was believed to be generally an evil entity that brought plague, illness, and swarm of locusts to communities, he was also believed to have some good traits, chief among them being that he was believed to be a protector of children as he shielded them from his wife deity, uh, Lameshtu. This is particularly ironic given the context of the film depicts Pazuzu terrorizing a child. Mm-hmm. So, interesting little, um, yeah, I like how, like, like, you know, they just, whenever they write, wrote the original book, they just kind of like chose a random Mesopotamian demon and didn't really focus on like, no, oh, what's this actual demon do? Like, no, oh, it just terrorizes a child because he's a demon. You know. Alright, here's the, the fact about the serial killer, or the, the serial killer. In the RDR arteriogram scene the bearded man who assists the doctor is paul bateson he was an x-ray technician at nyu medical center where that scene was shot and managed to get that small part in 1979 he was convicted of the murder of a film critic and was sentenced to 20 years in prison however he bragged about and was a suspect in the murders of six men whom he said he picked up in gay bars uh, had sex with them and then murdered them and dismembered their bodies and put them into plastic bags for fun in 1977 and 1978. They were known as the bag murders. Although investigators believed his story, he was never officially charged and those murders have technically never been solved. Bateson was released from prison in 2004 
The whole story revolving the bag murders was later fictionalized in Cruising, which is also directed by William Friedkin. Jeez. That so, is... So, how is he... I won't even go into that. How is he already out in 2004? But that's... Yeah, yeah. There's nothing to say. That sure sounds gross. That sure sounds yeah, gross, Jimbo. Yeah. <laughs> nothing about uh, that sits right. <laughs> Denise Nickerson, who played Violet Beauregard in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, was considered for Reagan... But the material troubled her parents too much, and they pulled her out of consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, Mercedes McCrimmage, as we mentioned before, provided the dubbed voice of Bazuzu, the demon possessing the young girl Raiden, played by Linda Blair. But to sound as disturbing as possible, McCambridge insisted on swallowing raw eggs, chain-smoking, and drinking whiskey to make her voice sound harsh and her performance aggressive. Direct- director William Freakin also arranged for her to be bound to a chair during the recordings that a demon seemed to be struggling against its restraints. So really went all out just to get that voice as uh, just as awful as possible, and uh, they succeeded, I believe. Uh, Dana Plato, you know who Dana Plato was? No. She was the uh, in Different Strokes, different Kimberly. Stroke. Oh, Kimberly. Okay. Uh, claimed that she had been offered the role of Reagan, but her mother Kay turned it down. In the book Former Child Stars, the story of America's Least Wanted, William Peter Blatley later said that he had no such recollection of this actually happening and that Plato herself may have been the source of this rumor. Mm. Uh, the agency representing Linda Blair overlooked her, recommending at least 30 other clients for the part of Reagan. <laughs> Blair's mother brought her in for herself to try out for this role. Uh, the bedroom set had to be refrigerated to capture the authentic icy breath of the actors in the exercising scenes. Linda Blair, who was only in a flimsy nightgown, says to this day she cannot stand being cold. Uh, the substance that the possessed Reagan hurls at Father Damien Karras is thick pea soup. Specifically, it's Anderson's brand pea soup. Uh, the crew tried Campbell's but didn't like the effect. <laughs> Yeah, it is chunky in all the gross possible ways. Where it's like, oh, oh, here you go, Gene Hackman. Oh wow, was uh, considered for the role of Father Karras. Yeah, I could see him doing it. Yeah, I could, I could easily see that. You know, it's a different movie, but it's, yeah, different movie. But also, I could, t- I could, I could totally imagine it. I really can. Gene Hackman has that range. He could definitely play a priest. Right. Director William Friedkin eventually asked technical advisor Thomas Birmingham to uh, exercise the set. He refused, saying an exorcism might increase anxiety. Reverend uh, Birmingham w- uh, wound up visiting the set and gave a blessing and a talk to reassure the cast and crew. Gonzalo Gaviria was called on to create many of the special sound effects after William Freakin recalled his work from El Topo. One of the more memorable sounds, the 360 degrees turning of Reagan's head, was actually made by taking his old cracked leather wallet and twisting it back and forth against the microphone. Ooh. <laughs> Even that explains the gross noises of it. The, the right. leather wallet. Yeah, that makes sense. After filming, William Freakin bought the production to 666 Fifth Avenue. Uh, there's a cameo by Eleanor Blair, who is the nurse who comes into Dr. Tanny's office after the uh, audiogram is Linda Blair's mother, which is interesting. Uh, the contortionist Anne Miles was hired to perform the famous spider walk scene which was filmed in November 1972. Miss Miles was able to perform the scene by use of harness and flying wires hung above the staircase used on the set. She would advise Freakin when she was just barely touching the uh, stairs with her hands and feet, and then she maintained that light touch as she uh, was moved down the staircase by the harness and wires. William Friedkin deleted the scene before the film's December release. He felt it was too much of an effect because apparently so early in the film. 
He later admitted that another reason for omitting the scene was that there was no way to hide the wires from view at that time. Almost 30 years later, Freakin changed his mind and added the scene back in for the extended 2000 version with the wires digitally removed. That makes a lot of sense, and I think uh, I think you probably made the right choice because I think like if you saw the wires on the original release, it would have taken you out of the movie a little bit. And having the scene now is kind of amazing. <laughs> like it is an amazing effect to watch because like just the like. You can tell how much he must have like played with the frame rate to get the speed just right, where it's not too fast, but it is fast enough to have that that exact sense you get when you like a spider runs up to you. It's the ah. exact same feeling of just like, oh god, no, that's not good. <laughs> that's a whole lot of bad right there. Burn the house down. It has that exact feeling. Yeah, yeah, with the kid in it. <laughs> Wow. Uh, uh, William Friedkin <laughs> had to take an all-British crew to film in Iraq because the U.S. had no diplomatic relations with Iraq at that time. They were allowed to film near ancient buildings and actual archaeological digs on conditions that including reaching Iraqi filmmakers' advanced film techniques as well how to um, make fake blood. So they got a little bit of exchange there going on. Well, that's interesting. Well, that's a cool transaction right there, actually. Really neat. Right. Like a trade of skill and goods, not just of just pure money. It is always interesting to kind of see like being done. Um, let's see here. Um, one thing for like we went into like the more like the later third of the film, so like in the spoiler area, but we've already kind of covered those things already in the early notes. Um, the sound of the demon leaving Reagan's body is actually the sound of pigs being herded for a slaughter. This leads this alludes to the story of the New Testament where Jesus cast out several demons collectively called Legion from a man and transferred them into the bodies of pigs. The pigs are then drowned. Um, similar to when Father Karras dying after accepting the demon when he's curling himself out the window. Mm. True. On the first day of filming the exorcism sequence, Linda Blair's delivery of her foul mouth dialogue so disturbed the gentlemanly Max Van Sand- von Sandow that he actually forgot his lines. <laughs> wow. I can, I can imagine that. For uh, sure. yeah. William Peter Blady based his novel on a supposedly genuine exorcism from 1949, which was partially performed in both Cottage City, Maryland, and St. Louis, Missouri. Several area newspapers reported on a speech a minister gave to an amateur uh, para- parapsychology society in which he claimed to have an exorcise a demon from a 13-year-old boy named Robbie and that the ordeal lasted a little more than six weeks. Robbie was born June 1st, 1935, resided at 3807 40th Avenue in Cottage City, uh, Maryland, and was a member of St. James Parish. He entered the 7th grade at Bladesenburg, uh, Bladesenburg Junior High in the fall of 1947, and was removed in the middle of his 8th grade year on January 15, 1949. He had experiences that ended on April 19, 1949. He re-enrolled in the 8th grade at Bladensburg Junior High for the 1949-50 school year, then spent from the fall of 1950 until June 1954 at Gonzaga High School in Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. So, whole life story there. Like, seems like things went, you know, not bad for him after that. Right. <laughs> so it's good. It's good to hear. Um, let's hear. Um, Director William Freakin went to some extraordinary lengths, lengths to get realistic reactions from the cast. He fired off guns behind the actors to get the <laughs> required startled effect when Father Tyre was going to administer last rites to Father Curious. Can you imagine that? Uh, yeah, but also, no, don't do that. <laughs> I can imagine him doing it, but oh my God, why? You don't need to do this. Just hire good actors. Don't don't scare them to death. Um, uh, Friedkin was not satisfied. After several takes, he took William O'Malley aside and asked, "Do you trust me?" O'Malley said, "Yes." Just in time to get slapped across the face. Oh! Uh, immediately said, "Action!" And the result is in the film. He went so far as to put Linda Blair and Ellen Bernstein in harnesses and have crew members yank them violently. 
That is, uh, William Freakin is a psychopath. Um, that's one thing I was just like that. No, um, no. Um, you know, if this is the only way you get a good film, you shouldn't be making films. <laughs> right there and say it. Uh, one of the most um, famous scenes in the movie and the shot used for the posters and the cover of the DVD VHS uh, releases was inspired by the 1953-1954 series of paintings Empire of Light by René Magritte. It is the scene where uh, Friar Marin steps out of the cab and stands in front of the McNeil residence bathed in the eerie glow. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, the stairwell, or the exorcist steps as they're now referred to, which has um, 75 or 74, considering that one step is actually very small, um, the stone steps at the end of M Street in Georgetown were padded with one half inch, uh, oh, half inch thick rubber to film the death of Father Karras. The stump man stumbled down those stairs twice, and Georgetown University students charged people around $5 each to wash the stump from the rooftops. <laughs> In order to bring some le- levity to the shoot, William Peter Blayley suggested shooting a scene not for the movie, but to amuse everyone at the screening of, of The Rushes, in which Father Marin would enter the house, take off his hat, and reveal himself to be none other than Groucho Marx, a friend of ladies. The parody would even go as far as featuring an appearance from the duck from You Bet Your Life. Groucho was keen to do it, but William Freakin got sick that day and the idea was abandoned. Oh, wow. Um, the demon that possesses Reagan McNeil is named Bazuzu in both the novel and the script, and director William Friedkin confirms this in the audio, audio commentary track in the Blu-ray or DVD release. However, this name is never mentioned once in any cut of the film. Being first used on screen was actually in the sequel, Exorcist II, The Heretic. During the film, Bazuzu lies to Father Damien Karras by claiming to be the devil Satan himself, but conversations with the Father Lancaster Marin show his claim to be false. The demon mask used in the movie uh, Onibaba inspired William Freakin to use a similar design for the makeup and subliminal shots of a white-faced demon. In the scene where Reagan is um, masturbating with the crucifix, uh, Elan Dietz was used for the shot where Reagan belts her mother across the face. William Friedkin felt that he needed someone with more heft physical to perform the stunt, and the double was shot from the back. The crucifix scene was filmed with Dietz, according to an interview with her in the documentary Stars Inside, Fantastic Flesh. Um, another fact about the end of the film, the exorcism scene itself, from start to end, lasts only nine minutes. That's another thing I think is really impressive that this film, like, you're almost halfway through it before anything really starts, like, the big stuff. And then even the exorcism scene itself is, like, so short. It's like, it's like you know, less is more approach to filmmaking that I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. In your specs. Uh, Linda Blair received her Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination before it was widely known that previous Supporting Actress winner Mercedes McCambridge had actually provided the voice of the demon. By Academy rules, once Blair was given the nomination, it could not be withdrawn, but the controversy about Blair being given credit for another actress's work ruined her chances of winning the award. Um, besides Mercedes Cambridge's lawsuit for credit in the film, Eileen Dietz also charged that she played the role of the demon during the exorcism scene. Director William Friggin denies this and says has cited that Dietz's actual screen time is less than one minute and she served as little more than a body double for Linda Blair. Nevertheless, Dietz, as of 2014, continues to promote herself as Captain Howdy from the demon from this film in interviews and at horror conventions around the world. Well, uh, in accordance with that, for the vomiting sequences, Eileen Dietz doubled uncredited for Linda Blair and later sued, as you said, unsuccessfully for puking credit. Makeup veteran Dick Smith rigged Dietz's facial contours with sheets of heat-formed plexiglass that were secured at the corners of her mouth and behind her head. A um, 
Camouflage nozzle anchored uh, to in Dietz's oral cavity provided the apparatus through which the vomit could be forcefully discharged, fed by supply tubes discreetly embedded in the plexiglass on both sides of her face. Such was the complexity of this uh, of the setup that Dietz could barely swallow or close her mouth. Oh, jeez, it's crazy. All right, that's a impressive work again, like really impressive, right. but also like wow. Um, and in order to make Max Vincent Sandow uh, appear much older than his age of forty-four, makeup maestro Dick Smith applied generous amounts of stipple uh, on uh, for Von Sal- uh, sorry Von Sandow's forehead, eyes, and neck. His facial skin was then manually stretched as liquid latex was applied. When the latex dried, his taut skin was then released, causing the film of rubber to corrugate. The daily uh, makeup procedure lasted three hours. It was apparently the cause of much anguish for Von Sadow. Man, you gotta think like he went through all that to make an incredibly good film, but then like also like it caused him trouble getting work afterwards because it was so popular in his makeup. So like you know had to wait another thirty years so we can actually be that man who was the old man. <laughs> uh, Entertainment um, Weekly and Maxim voted this as the scariest movie of all time. Scariest movie of all time. I don't know if I'd go that far, but it certainly is up there of like suspense and like dread. Um, spoiler: In 1985, when Joel Schumacher was filming St. Elmo's Fire at Georgetown and attempted to get permission from the Jesuit priest facility at the school to film there, he was rejected. Um, Schumacher's complaint to the facility: "You let Bill Freakin um, film The Exorcist here in '73, and one of the characters in the movie that said um, your mother sucks male reproductive organs in hell." Um, one of the Jesuit priests: "Yes, but the devil didn't win in that movie." <laughs> In the documentary included on the 25th anniversary edition, the actors revealed that in many shots it was not necessarily uh, not necessary to act, as what was captured on film were genuine reactions. For example, Ellen Burstyn mentions that her scream and facial reaction after being slapped by Reagan were due to being pulled too hard by a harness. Linda Blair's screaming was a reaction uh, to being bounced around on her bed too hard. And William O'Malley, as Kyle just mentioned, recalled that uh, William Freakin slapped him prior to shooting, and this caused his hand to tremble while blessing Father Karras. <laughs> there are tales about ominous events surrounding the year-long shoot, including the deaths of nine people associated with the production and stories about a mysterious fire that destroyed the set one weekend. Actors Jack McGowan and Vasiliki Melleros died before the film was released. Oh, wow. Um, also, a uh, final fact from me here. Unless you've read the book, you may not know that when Reagan turns her heads all the way around for the first time and says, do you know what she did? Do you know what your daughter did? The demon is imitating Burke Dennings, the director who fell from the Reagan's window. Um, this head turn represents how Burke's head was turned completely around and the words that Reagan, as the demon sayer, are telling Chris that Reagan killed Burke. And that's how she knows you know, how she murdered him, mm. instead of just suspecting it. You know, That's basically her admitting to the crime. So. Upon its initial theatrical release, this film affected many audiences so strongly that at many theaters, paramedics were called to treat people who fainted and others went into hysterics. Now, I had also read um, that a lot of people, um, you know, that had claimed to vomit and get sick of this movie, it was not from the demon scenes um, or the, you know, the crucifix masturbation scene or any of that. It was actually from that procedure that Reagan had where they stuck that... Um, I'm sure oh, I got it that, in here somewhere. That yeah. thing in the throat and it mm-hmm. sucks the blood out. It's just, you know, it made me queasy just sitting in a chair watching it here at home. So mm-hmm. I don't uh, imagine I've seen that in a theater. Uh, the worst. 3D or something. You can't, yeah, because you can't avoid it. It's, just, it's right there in front of you. Uh, due to death threats against Linda Blair from religious zealots who believed the film glorified Satan, Warner Brothers had bodyguards protect her, protecting her for six months after the film's release. 
Uh, Jack Nicholson was up for the part of Father Karras before Jason Miller landed the role. William Friedkin thought he was too unholy to ever play a priest. And they were right. They were right. <laughs> you know, Cameo. you have Jack Nicholson playing a priest, you have a comedy movie at that point. <laughs> Cameo but William Peter Blayley. The writer of the novel can be seen in the film during the fil- uh, filming scene sitting next to Burke Dennings with a large mustache and wearing a moleskin jacket. <laughs> In the scenes where the words help me arise out of Reagan's torso, the effects was achieved by constructing a foam latex replica of actress Linda Blair's belly, writing the words out with a paintbrush and cleaning fluid, then filming the words as they formed from the chemical reaction. Special effects artist Dick Smith then heated the form, uh, forming blisters with a blow dryer, causing them to deflate. When the film was run backwards, it appeared as though the words were rising out of Reagan's skin in an attempt to summon intervention. Wow, that is a lot more intricate than I thought it was. Because when I watched the film, I thought they just like applied the makeup to like layer it on so right. they had that 3D depth to it. And all the rising was actually them just shifting the angle so it's more clear to see what the actual word is. I had no idea it was supposed to be literally rising out of her stomach like that. Right. Um, I have to go rewatch that little scene now just to see the effect because like, I didn't notice that at all. <laughs> I feel bad Mercedes now. McCambridge regurgitated uh, on a mixture of chewed, mushy apple and raw egg to produce the sound effect of Reagan's projectile vomiting. Oh, oh, oh. gross. In uh, an interview on the January 12, 2007 broadcast of the Mr. KABC radio program, it was revealed that actress-comedian uh, April Winchell was being seriously considered for the part of Reagan McNeil. However, she had developed a serious kidney infection, which caused her to be hospitalized and ultimately taken out of consideration. According to Panorama magazine, William Freakin didn't give Brooke Shields the part of Reagan McNeil because she was too young for the part. It is known that Shields at the time wasn't known as an actress prior to the controversy of a similar film, Pretty Baby. According to Variety magazine, it was revealed that Carrie Fisher and her mother Debbie Reynolds were contenders for the roles of Reagan and Chris McNeil. Reynolds is mentioned in the film by Lieutenant Kinderman and Jess as playing Desdemona in Othello. That would have been a very interesting role to play. (laughs) I can see her doing it, though. Here, Kyle, here's some more notes I'll give you so we can get... Oh, okay. Get get to the line share of this. I didn't realize we had still still so many to go. Yeah. Uh, To entertain and distract Linda Blair during the long makeup process, she had to sit through the crew, set up a television near her makeup chair so she could watch what TV show, Kyle? What TV show was it? The Beverly Hillbillies. The Beverly Hillbillies, an absolute <laughs> classic. Uh, the scene uh, where Reagan projectile vomits a father curse only required one take. The vomit was intended to hit Jason Miller in the chest, but the plastic tube <laughs> misfired, hitting him in the face. His reaction of shock and disgust while wiping away the vomit is genuine when Miller admitted in an interview that he was very angered by this mistake. See, that makes a lot of sense. Because <laughs> he does look really absolutely disgusted by it in a really convincing way. He's like, um, how dare you? And that is a case of not going too far. Shooting a gun on set? Too far. Throwing dumb uh, fake vomit at somebody? Hilarious. <laughs> Do it all the time, filmmakers. Um, Captain Howdy is a play on the name Howard, which is Reagan's father's name, and Chris's estranged husband's name. We learn that from the shot of the tabloid magazine at the beginning that Reagan is looking at, which says, Howard walks out on Chris and daughter, that Mr. Michelle has just left them, and his logically follows that Reagan is devastated by that and is looking for a substitute father figure. The demon, after being contacted by Reagan, inadvertently through the Ouija board, knows this, and so he introduces himself as Howdy to emulate her father and become the father figure she is hungering for at this point in her life. 
So I guess Jason Miller and uh, William Friedkin had a verbal uh, confrontation when he fired the gun. He, uh, Jason uh, Miller said, look, I'm an actor. You don't need to be doing this to me. So And he was right. Yeah. <laughs> he was um, right. Actress Mercedes McCambridge uh, provided the voice statement, insists on swallowing the raw eggs and chain-smoking daughter of voice, as Khaled said earlier. Mm-hmm. The actress who had problems with alcohol abuse in the past furthermore wanted to drink whiskey as she knew alcohol would distort her voice even more and create the crazed state of mind of the character. As she was giving up sobriety, she insisted that her priest be present to counsel her during the recording process. At William Freakin's direction, McCambridge was also bound to a chair with pieces of a torn sheet at her neck, arms, wrists, legs, and feet to get a more realistic sound of the demon struggling against its restraint. McCambridge later recalled the experience as one of a horrific rage, while Friedkin admitted that her performance, as well as the extremes which the actress put herself through to gain authenticity, terrifies the director to this day. This was probably the reason why Friedkin declined to call McCambridge uh, back to provide the demon's voice for the film's TV version, and uh, instead decided to do the voice himself. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, that that's a that's really going all out to get that role too. I don't know if like like I feel like that's almost like borderline where like maybe she went too far to get that voice perfectly right, but it does show in the final cut like it really is a, a convincingly terrifying voice that she went through to get there. Um, oh, Jimbo, let's see here. I get to, I get to play this game on you for a little bit here. Um, three sitcom stars were for, up for the role of Reagan. We have Anissa Jones from the um, Buffy on the Family Affairs show. Can you see her doing that role? Or have you ever watched the Family Affairs show? I haven't seen it. Haven't seen Family Affairs show? Okay. We have Dana Plato, who was um, Kimberly on the show Different Strokes. Could you see her doing the role? No. No? Absolutely not. Then we have Eve Plum, uh, who was Jan on Jan. the show Brady Bunch. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Plum because she would just be sitting there going, why is it always my Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Oh, just imagine the demon voice saying that. Yeah. Um, ironically, two of these actresses, Anissa Jones and Diana Plow, would die at a very young age of drug addiction. What in the world? This note just went very south. Um, Anissa Jones and Diana Plow sadly died at a very young age yep. of drug addiction. That's very sad. That took a whiplash turn there. Right. Okay. Uh, William Peter Blady reminisces that the supernatural demonic sequence did not inspire patrons to flee theater, nor were they responsible for nausea in the house. This is what I was talking about earlier. The scene in which Reagan undergoes cardioid aneography using direct cardioid puncture and, boy, this is a Kyle word, pneumonencephalography. Ooh, yeah. sure you got that right. I'm sure I nailed it. Uh, was in the moment in the exorcism which upset theater goers. This procedure in, uh, entails cerebrospinal fluid being drained to a small amount from around the brain and replaced with air, oxygen, or helium to allow the structure of the brain to show up more clearly on x-rays. Hmm. Whew, wow. This Here's is some. Kane Hodder's favorite film. You know who Kane Hodder is? Who's Kane Hodder? He plays Jason. Jason. Oh, Voorhees. That guy? Yes. Oh, cool. Oh, here you go, Kyle. Alan Alda was offered a role in this movie, <laughs> but rejected it because he did not like the book. I don't think that quite fits his uh, repertoire. <laughs> I don't know if that's, that's quite Unless he movie. was the doctor. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that could work. I could see that. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Um, Freakin' and Mercedes Cambridge got into a huge fight right after their premiere because she was not mentioned in the credits. It turns out uh, it turned into a big he said she situation. Him claiming she told him not to mention her. Her claiming it was not true and then um, messed her over. She wound up suing Freakin' to the studio and while this was happening the studio was putting together the network presentation of the hours. 
um, network of, as in television. Without McCameron on hand to provide the voice of the demon, Franken would end up using the voice himself. I did my best to growl and read the lines myself. Oh, okay, we already covered that note a little bit beforehand. Yeah. Linda Blair hated vegetables so much at the time that the use of the pea soup actually did make her vomit. <laughs> And despite playing the title role, Max von Sydow, or Sydow had less screen time than the rest of the main cast. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can imagine that making me vomit too. I, I, I've had peas plenty of times in my life, but I never had pea soup, honestly. And I don't think I'd ever like it. Yeah. <laughs> That's Barbara awesome. Streisand declined the role of Chris McNeil. Mm-hmm. Chris. <laughs> Yeah, probably right. Uh, the demon seen but not named throughout the movie is Pazuzu, a demon known in Assyrian and Babylonian mythology as the demon that brings famine during the dry season and locusts during the rainy seasons. He was the king of the demons of the wind. During a 1984 reunion of the cast of The Exorcist on Good Morning America, Ellen Burson told a story of when she was in Tucson, uh, Arizona, filming Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, and The Exorcist was opening in that city while she was there, so she went to see it. She stated that the scene where Reagan has her uh, audiogram, the scene uh, from where Reagan gets the catheter inserted into her neck, as we talked about, was the part where most people fainted. After that scene, she saw a woman wobbling up the aisle, so Miss uh, Burston followed her. When the woman finally fainted, Miss Burston uh, was at uh, her aid, loosening her collar and talking to her. Then the woman began to come to, and Burson realized that if this woman opens her eyes and saw me, this might make the woman panic. Yeah. <laughs> Ms. Burson, the exact words was that she might think she was in the twilight zone or something. So Burson asked assistance from another person to help the woman recover. I mean, can you imagine, like, yeah. you, you hear, like, uh, Harrison Ford, you know, flying his helicopter or whatever, or hel- uh, airplane, you know, on yeah. rescue missions of people trapped on sides of mountains and stuff. Can you imagine, like... Yeah, like, Jack like, yeah. Black pulling up to you. You have a flat tire, and he helps you change a flat <laughs> was, tire or, or whatever. Like, who was the guy from Saw? Like it was Tobin Bell or whatever his name is. Like just imagine like like, like getting grossed up by that film and running out and like almost fainting, and then you wake <laughs> up <laughs> and there's Tobin Bell looking at you, jigsaw. Like, oh my god! Do you want to play a game? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just you die from fright at that point, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, oh, um, both um, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert gave The Exorcist four stars or two thumbs up, rather. Um, this is amazing considering both Gene Siskel was notoriously prudish about horror films. He gave the thumbs down to both the films Poltergeist and Aliens, and even The Sounds of the Lambs. Siskel frequently complained about terrorizing of children in movies and complained about similar themes in Poltergeist. But he said the actress had a such stunning professionalism on every level, and the ending was so moving with the priests heroically sacrificing themselves for the child. He said he loved it. To create sound effects ranging from scratching in the house to the devilish noises, the sound effects crew recorded Beagle Dogs, Pigs going to slaughter, a woman convulsing, and a trapped bee. In one instance, a variable speed oscillator was used to tune the buzzing of the bee to various pitches to create a chord cluster spanning four octaves. Hmm. Just really make it like a maximum creepy. Uh, the film was plagued with problems that caused delays and raised the budget. Uh, William Freakin blamed part of the budget problems on the con- continuous breakdown of a $50,000 air conditioner unit required to cool Reagan's room to sub zero temperatures for some scenes in which the actor's breath needed to appear chilled. In his interview at a 2006 AMPAS screening, Frequent noted that when camera lights heated the room, shooting would be discontinued until the air returned to below freezing. $50,000 for an air conditioner. $50,000 for an air conditioner. 
additional yeah. problems uh, recounted by William Freakin resulted because both Ellen Burson and Max von Sendow were out for weeks. Jason Miller's young son was critically injured during filming and shooting in Iraq. It was so hot that some of the crew members grew ill and had to be replaced. In his interview in 2006 at the same screening as above, uh, Friedkin said that the two-story house set burned to the ground, causing a three-week delay as well. You get the feeling that somebody didn't want him to make this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see. I, I can see why. I mean, for the controversy at the time, um, the original author, um, William Peter Wiley, has said he meant to describe Reagan Head as turning around rapidly, shifting left and right really fast, but not doing the full one eighty or the full three sixty like it did in the film, which is an impossibility, of course, unless you're an owl. Um, but uh, freaking embellished this um, twice, actually, once in the crucifix scene and once in the exorcism scene. But Blatty wound up admitting that his invention of Freakin's part was effective, and he referred it. So Linda Blair had it written into her contract that she would not wear any of the same demon makeup for Exorcist Two, The Heretic, since the experience of doing it in the first film was so harrowing. This is why the demon is beautiful and feminine in Part Two, where uh, in Part One it was so monstrous. In the novel, the possessed Reagan has diarrhea and frequently relieves herself. Because of this, she has to wear diapers. It is also frequently mentioned in the book that her bedroom was had almost an unbearable stench like Winston's cage. Oh, gosh, that is very, very gross. Or yeah, like Kyle, they, Kyle's room. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> He's like, uh, William Freakin's attention to detail was so extensive that an early scene that simply involved breakfast being cooked took over a day to complete because the director wanted to use bacon that wouldn't smoke and sizzle, which in 1972 meant the production had to find very hard to locate bacon that didn't have preservatives in the Washington, D.C. area. <laughs> yeah okay yeah i guess like insanely obsessive filmmakers like that you know are a benefit especially in the 70s necessarily when you want to get a perfect film done but man nowadays it's like no just do things simpler fix it in post if you have to but like don't be so crazy about every little detail about this right you're making like you're, you're you're making things harder on everyone else to make a scene um you know, 0.1% more realistic in your mind. Like, it's, it's dumb. Heavy metal band Pantera's 1992 album, A Vulgar Display of Power, was named after the demon's reply when Father Karras asked him, why can't you make the restraints disappear? To which the demon replies, that's much too vulgar a display of power. <laughs> nice. And last but not least, Kyle, these are all actors that uh, were considered for the role of Father Karras. So tell me if you think they could have played them or, or played him or not. Jack Nicholson. No. Dustin Hoffman. Yes. Warren Beatty. Ooh, maybe. Burt Reynolds. <laughs> you know, yes, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes, just because I want to see more Burt Reynolds. Only we came in with a big cowboy hat. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, when he, Nobody when, mentions when it. With the exercise, the DVD, you just see him go, 10 four, good, just buddy. Just 20 gallons. <laughs> uh, Ryan O'Neill. Um, yes. Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda. Ooh, yeah, yes. I think I've been a good one. Al Pacino. Oh, I don't uh, know. maybe, maybe. John Voy. John Voy. Um, yeah. Robert Blake. Robert Blake. Uh, was he in again? Beretta. Beretta. Oh, the guy that killed his wife or whatever. Remember? Oh yeah. Um, maybe. <laughs> Christopher Walken. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, okay. So I got to think of like um. Uh, what was the the deer hunter? I'm thinking of that. Yeah, yeah, I bet he could do it. He could uh, do it. It would have been very different, but he could have done it. Elaine Delon. Elaine Delon. Uh, I don't remember that one. I don't know who that is. James Caan. Um, yeah. Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider. Um, 
think of Roy Schneider. No, <laughs> de- definitely not. Uh, no. Paul Newman. Uh, ooh, that would have been cool. Um, yes. Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando, yes. Elliot Gold. I want to say yes, but Elliot Gold, and this is a not 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 sound like a derogative or a very stereotype. Elliot Gold is very Jewish, <laughs> so maybe. Uh, Alan Alda, um, yes, and George Hamilton. George Hamilton, um, maybe. I can say maybe. So, Kyle, what's your thoughts and feelings on The Exorcist? Uh, this is a film that we we had the we had a little bit of a, of a different kind of timeline for we did the first preview episode versus the full episode we're doing now. So I've actually watched this a few times now, and each time I watch it, I have a greater appreciation for it. So like, I think this film is excellent, great. Even I think it's a it's a fantastic horror film that I understand why so many other horror films took inspiration, reverence from it across all media, and why there's such a silly powerful fandom for it and um, trying to get through the history of it. So I think. Um, it's an incredible film overall and well worth watching multiple times. It's definitely, a, I think, a more of an adult film. This is not a film you take your you know, little kids to or even like um, even like somewhat you know um, middle-of-the-road kids to. You know, like around that you know, 9 to 12 range, I think it's still probably too young for these kind of kids. Um, but um, it's a very, very good horror film, and I think it absolutely um, holds up to um, scrutiny. So uh, despite my misgivings with um, the way William Freakin made the film... I think he did a, a, a fantastic job at the end of the day, actually, in his final product. So, yes, I think it's a great film and well worth watching. I do believe that our good friend uh, Brett from the Evil Never Dies podcast said that his mom took him to see this movie when he was in kindergarten. Uh, well, there's, there's, there's the other side of the range when, like, you're in kindergarten, <laughs> so you don't understand anything going on. So you can get away with anything at that age. Um, <laughs> if he was even in second grade, probably too young. Kindergarten, though, he's fine. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the range I think it actually happens. Or whatever. He may disagree. If he does, that's fine. That's cool. Um, <laughs> wow, kindergarten. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but um, Jimbo, what do you think of this film? You know... You, you often hear about this being the scariest movie of all time. Um, I don't know if I agree with that statement. Um, I think it's scary because it could really happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, you're, if you have that kind of faith and you right. have that kind of dismay, um, it feels real in a way right. that because, you, because there's there's real world instances that the news covers or real life happenings, uh, stuff like this happening. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's documented history of this. Mm. So that part to me is scary. Um, but to say it's the scariest movie of all time, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Um, did I like the movie? <sighs> Not really. Um, Mm-hmm. For what it is, sure. Um, but to me, it was just... Uh, I, I don't even know how I want to describe it. It wasn't mesmerizing. I, Maybe it's overhyped. I think it's unnerving in all the right ways for me in so many respects. And also, I, I think... Um, I think you're right, too. I'm not saying, like, it's not the best... It's not the most scary movie of all time. And that's... To me, that's a kind of a weird award to give a film because, like, who would want to watch the most scary movie of all time where I feel like I'm going to die while watching it? That's not actually enjoyable. But this is, like, one of the most enjoyable horror movies of all time. But you got to remember, at and, the time that this came out... Oh, yeah. I it was that. probably something that had not been seen before. So because taboo they're so, a topic They're to so used to. to the Wolfman or the Creature from the Black Lagoon, those type of horror movies, mm-hmm. that when this movie came out, or even the Hammer films, mm-hmm. but when this movie came out, it was something that... 
was probably so real that was talked about in the world at that time yeah. that it made everybody tackling such a taboo subject matter, scary, especially. Right. Like I, I understand that, but at the same time, though, like it's like as a film you know goer and watcher, like I don't want to see the most horrifying movie of all time. There's a point where, like there's that you want to hit that sweet spot of horror where like you're intrigued but you're not so horrified that you can't watch the film. You know, so like the most horrifying movie of all time is not a film I actually want to watch. I want to watch the film that's like just right for me in that mid-range of like I'm not bored, but I'm also not like fear for my life in the theater moment where I have to leave. That seems like ridiculous to me. So like, right. you know, like I understand people say bust horror movie all the time. They don't necessarily mean that, but at the same time that anytime I hear that, that's what I think. So it's kind of so ridiculous. So I'm not going to gonna knock anybody that says that this is like their favorite horror movie. So I mean, everybody has their own opinion, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think it depends on where you were at in life, how old you were when you saw this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, if you didn't wait and see it like uh, you did probably until recently. Yeah, as an adult. Or- even like, let's say 10 years ago when mm-hmm. you would have saw it, your opinion might have been different back then because you might not have been mature enough. I say that, but uh, no, I, I, I know how you act now. Yeah, but yeah. I'm just saying, yeah, you know, as you're growing up and you see it, you know what I mean? And, and you hear people talking about it. And I think a lot of the success of this movie because there were no VHSs or DVDs or streaming services, I think this movie got so popular by word of mouth. And and if a news article covered it or on the news saying, oh, people are passing out, then that draws intrigue to me of, oh, I better go see this movie to see what everybody's talking about or why this person did pass out during the theater. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Um, so I think that was probably more of it than an actual good movie. So, Kyle, if you were rating this on a scale of 1 to 10, where would you rank it? Oh, it's up there between like the eight and nines kind of scale. Uh, I think like for me, I'm gonna put like solid eight on it because like, I think it's I think it's truly great. Um, it's not like my, my favorite horror movie of all time, but I do think it's worth watching many times over and appreciating in greater detail each time. Um, and also, I think it's just a good film for you know like the adult maturation to appreciate you know kind of movie. So I would give it an eight. Yeah, I'd probably give it a, a solid seven. Yeah, solid um, seven. You know, it's 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 above average. Uh, uh, oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Cream it's of the not perfect. Kind of yeah, it's yeah. not perfect, but it's above average. So, mm-hmm. um, well, I think we've rattled on long enough for this uh, Halloween special. We hope everyone has a safe and happy Halloween. Always, yeah. Um, thanks for listening. Um, also, if you'd like to follow us on the social media, it's the Tragedy of Cinema Podcast Group on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, if you want to email us at the Tragedy of Cinema at gmail dot com, uh, if you want to leave us a review, we will read it on the air. Um, good, bad, or ugly. Uh, we take all criticism, constructive, and praise, whatever you want to say. We love audience feedback. I mean, we want to make a good show for you all, right. the, time, all the time. And we love the people that listen to us. So thanks Absolutely. for listening to us. So, Kyle, any final thoughts? Uh, you know, I, I, I echoing the same thing. Again. Have, a, have a safe and fun Halloween. Get scared, but not too scared. I was Kyle, say, get that meat point. I want you to dress up in your Garfield, recreate your Garfield oh, scene, uh, your costume. Take a new picture of it. While you, you while you have that on, your first TikTok is going to be you in the Garfield suit. Watching The Exorcist? Oh, eating boy. pea soup. Eating pea soup. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, boy. That's yeah. a lot of mission. That would be great. So, like, one day we get tip top, get a Garfield costume, <laughs> and eat pea soup. You know, when you stack TikTok, it up all that way, then I can get it all done at once. Right. You know, it feels like a natural achievable task now, or instead of just something I avoid. <laughs> All right. Well, All I think right. that well, tells us yeah. to a wrap. With that so. being said, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut.